I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Starting today in verse 27. We're learning to follow Jesus together by studying his theological biography, the Gospel of Matthew. And we've reached Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've been there a couple months. We'll be there for a few more. Jesus is teaching with unusual authority. He's gone up on a mountainside and has begun rocking the world of his listeners by teaching them about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is turning their world upside down, and our world, as we listen to him, upside down, because he's teaching what God truly values and what God truly wants from us. How to flourish by living counterculturally. We call it the good life of the kingdom. The Beatitudes. How to change the world by living as salt and living as light, bringing glory to our Father in heaven. And now, how to live out a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it. Every jot and every tittle, every little dot, every little, every little mark in the law is going to be fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus has not come just as the ultimate interpreter of the law, which he is. But he has come as the ultimate fulfillment of the law. He is the whole point of the law. And he calls his followers to live out a greater righteousness than the righteousness that the Jewish religious leaders were living out before them. And so he gives us six examples. Six illustrations of uh, of, both what, of both how he fulfills the Old Testament and how he wants us to live out a greater righteousness. Scholars have called them the six antitheses, but I call them the six but I tell yous. Okay? Here's our title for today's message. Last week I told you that I would try to think up a more clever title for today's message. Well, I failed. I'm just going to... I could not think of anything... Uh, Anything clever, anything good. So I'm just going to call it, but I tell you to the sequel, okay? Coming to a sermon near you. I thought about calling it, but I tell yins uh, to fit with our, uh, our Pittsburgh fans, but it's, it's basically the same thing. If you remember, the Greek for that is ego de lego. Did anybody say ego de lego at Sunday lunch last week? Six times Jesus says ego de lego. But I tell you. And the emphasis is on what word? I. You have heard that it was said. But I, Jesus, tell you how it really is. Now that I have come. The first of these, but I tell you, was the longest. And it set the pattern. Do you remember the pattern from last week? There's three parts to it. Okay? There's First, he quotes from the Torah. And then... Uh, and then he gives the authoritative explanation of that quotation with all of its messianic meaning. And in that interpretation, in part two, he explodes the common myths about the, the popular interpretations that these people had always heard and, and, and come to believe. What they had often been taught erroneously. Jesus corrects those and sets everything straight in the middle part. And then in the third part of each, I tell you, he gives a practical application to daily life. 
really an antidote to the problem he's addressing. And he normally says it with a twist, right? To, to kind of spin you into obeying it. So he quotes from the law, part one. Then he gives the messianic meaning, part two. And then he gives a practical application to daily life with a twist to send you into obeying it. Last week, we just looked at the first one. This week, I want to try to look at the next three, verses 27 through 37. Let's read them together, and then we'll pray, and we'll walk through them more slowly and try to understand what King Jesus is saying to us today. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Would you pray with me? King Jesus We have just confessed your glory. We've just confessed your preciousness. You're the solid rock. You're our one hope. You are our only plea. You are our wonderful, merciful Savior. We want your name to be lifted on high. We love you. Now, Lord, help us to listen to you and to receive this teaching from our King of how you want us to live. You have given us great grace and you are calling us to live out great righteousness. Help us to see it and then and hear it and know it and believe it and to live it. We pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. So these are hard teachings. There's no getting around it. These words make us uncomfortable. They challenge us. They convict us. And if they don't, then we aren't paying attention. He intends to make us uncomfortable. The Lord Jesus is incredibly serious about this greater righteousness. And he's calling us to live his way as citizens of his kingdom. And the good news is that he will provide all of the grace that we need to live the life that he wants us to live. All we have to do is to believe and follow him. So let's look closer, more closely, at what Jesus tells us. In verse 27, 
he gives us the second of the but I tell you's. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. So he's following the pattern, right? The one, two, three pattern of these. That's part number one. Jesus quotes from the Torah. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Where's that from? Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, verse 14. It's Which commandment is it? Can you number it? Close. It's the seventh. That's right. It's the seventh commandment where God through Moses prohibited sexual relations between two people who were not married to each other. Having sex with someone who is not your own spouse is prohibited. Do not commit adultery. So what do you think the Pharisees did with that? Check. Right? Okay, got that one down, they said. Yeah, that's a little harder to obey than the last one. Do not murder. But a little willpower and a little divorce and remarriage, if necessary, to get the right spouse lined up. And we can and will keep that commandment. Check. We are righteous. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, wait a second there. I'm asking for something greater than that. Verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, it goes the other way too, ladies. But Jesus, for several obvious reasons, focuses here on the men. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's a lot like the last one too, isn't it? Hateful anger, we said last week, is murder in the mind, right? Well, sexual lust is adultery in the heart. Where's Jesus going? He's going internal. He goes in deep. Jesus goes to the attitude level. He goes to the affections. He goes past the externals and into the internals. He goes to the root. He goes to the real you, the inner you. He goes to the heart. And it's on that heart level that Jesus requires righteousness. Jesus requires purity. Now, that's where the law was always aimed, wasn't it? I mean, the law was never like, well, just don't sleep with someone who isn't your spouse and you're good. What does the 10th commandment forbid? You shall not what? Covet, right? That's a hard attitude. And one of the things that you're not supposed to covet in the 10th commandment is your neighbor's wife. The law was always driving towards internal purity, not just external purity, not just checking the box. Internal fidelity, not just external fidelity. Internal faithfulness, not just external faithfulness. That's what King Jesus wants from every citizen of his kingdom. It's not enough to keep from jumping into a foreign bed. We are called to not even go there in our minds. The sensual stare, the lustful gaze, the lingering look, the imagining fantasies. Those things are sin. Guys, if she's not your wife, you should not look at her in that way. Ladies, if, she's, if he's not your husband, you should not look at him that way. And if, and if you do, you are committing adultery in your heart according to King Jesus. 
Now, just like murder is worse than anger, committing physical adultery is worse than mental adultery. But they both have the same root. They both have the same heart. They are both sin. And they both grieve the Lord and are dangerous to our souls. Why does Jesus care so much about this? One of the biggest reasons is because marriage is designed from the beginning to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. And more specifically, Jesus' relationship with his church. So, of course, Jesus cares. And and he has designed sexuality to be a great gift to be shared within the context of the covenant of marriage. So any perversion of that grand design will fail to bring glory to him as the designer and will not be good for us either. said it before, sex is for marriage like fires for the fireplace, right? If you got fire in the fireplace, you have a wonderful evening, right? Enjoying the warmth. But if, if the fire is in your couch, your house is going to burn down, right? Any perversion of God's grand design will fail to bring glory to Him as the designer and will not be good for us either. So we've seen the first two parts, right, of, of this, but I tell you, here's the Torah, here's the explanation. What's the practical application? What is the medicine that Dr. Jesus would apply to this adultery and lust problem? Point number one of three this morning. Do what it takes to defeat sexual sin. Do what it takes to defeat sexual sin. Listen to Jesus, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do you see how seriously Jesus treats this? Let me ask you, do you think he's going a little overboard? Do you want to risk it? Jesus is asking the question, so what is your sin worth to you? Will you do whatever it takes to defeat sexual sin? Everything between a lustful look and extramarital intercourse? Everything in between? Do whatever it takes to defeat sexual sin. Now before you go grabbing a knife... There's a key word in Jesus' two examples here that is very important. What is it? If. If your right eye causes you to sin, causes you to stumble, causes you to fall away, causes you to stop following Jesus, gouge it out and throw it away. Here's my question. Can your eye really do that? No. Can blind people lust? Just as well as sighted people? Absolutely. How about your right hand? Can it cause you? Can it make you sin? Has your right hand ever sent you into sin? You have to obey your right hand? Is that where sin comes from? Your right hand? No. This is hypothetical, but it's a serious hypothetical. 
He's not being funny. Jesus is saying that we have to be ready to take drastic action to combat our sinful tendencies. We have to get radical. We have to get violent, so to speak. Our Lord Jesus is calling us to wage war against our own sinful tendencies and do whatever it takes. So it's not our favorite eye or our favorite hand. But what do we need to give up? What do we need to sacrifice? What changes do we need to make to cut this sin out of our hearts and out of our lives? The changes have to start on the heart level. My eye and my hand can't make me sin, but my sinful heart sure can. And I can't cut that out. It's spiritual. I have to have the Spirit change me from the inside out. I need to repent I need a new heart, and I need my new heart to be continually renewed. You see how Jesus is always calling us to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near? That's the first thing we heard, right? First message from Jesus. Repent, turn around, because the kingdom is coming. In fact, it's here. The king has come. Is repentance hard? Yeah, sometimes. But Jesus never said that following him would be easy. He just said that it would be worth it. This is the greater righteousness. Cultivating purity on the inside. Now, of course, that will mean making changes, including practical ones that work out from the heart. For guys especially, it's going to mean accountability. It might mean a filter on your computer. I use one called Covenant Eyes. Keeps me from... Lots of bad sites, and if I start to go towards those bad sites, it sends a note to my accountability partner who gives me a call and says, Matt, what are these sites? What are we looking at here? It might mean turning off data on your phone. It might mean not having a smartphone at all if you can't be trusted with it. Or turning your phone or your computer always in the living room where everybody can see what you are looking at. It might mean switching jobs so that you are no longer near that person you're tempted to lust after. Do whatever it takes. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're lusting after someone to whom you are not married, what will it take for you to stop? Do that. This is hard. It's always been hard. Ever since the fall. But it's especially hard in our sexualized culture where we don't think much about sexual purity at all. Men and women live together without even being married. And that's seen as normal. Marriage is weird in our culture. It's maybe seen as the eventual goal, but sex comes way before marriage. In fact, sex comes whenever you want it, as long as two or more people consent. Every commercial, every magazine cover, every pop-up ad invites lust. Porn is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But that's not normal. See, not in the kingdom. The kingdom seems upside down, but it's actually right side up. It's us that are upside down or want to be. And Jesus is saying that we need to do whatever it takes to live right side up from the inside out. Now, the next one is connected. 
It's also about marriage and adultery. And it's also about divorce. Look at verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now that's not one of the Ten Commandments. But it is from the Torah. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses explains that if a man marries a woman who becomes, quote, displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, end quote, he is to write her a legal document that releases her from the marriage and frees her to marry another man. Now that's all well and good. It's in in the Torah. It's, It's from God. It's good. But the Pharisees had twisted that to their own ends in a couple of different ways. One was how they interpreted the words in Deuteronomy 24, something indecent. See how there might be some wiggle room there, right? There were two main schools of thought. One, the school of Rabbi Shammai, taught that the something indecent was basically adultery. The other school, that of Rabbi Hillel, taught that it was basically anything this guy didn't like about his wife. The way she looked, the way she talked, the way she raised the kids, and even, I'm not making this up, if she burned supper. Okay? If he came home and dinner was toast, black, black toast, he could just write up a certificate and say, I divorce you, and send her packing. That was something indecent. Get out of here. Now you can see how this kind of teaching could easily be abused. You can see how they could have had a use her and then lose her approach to marriage. So you aren't technically committing adultery, but you're getting married, getting divorced, getting remarried to somebody new just to keep things spicy in the bedroom. The other way that they twisted the law was by basically requiring divorce. Whenever the husband identified this something indecent, requiring it. And in that culture, do you see how perilous that was for the women involved? How vulnerable that left them? That's not how it should be. That's not what was intended in the law. The women should have been protected and safe and cared for and valued. Not tossed out like some unwanted goods. So King Jesus comes in. And this is what the Messiah says, verse 32. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, no. There will be no easy divorces for my followers. Not in my kingdom. They will not just toss out their marriage vows for any and all reasons. They won't give up on their marriages just because the going gets rough and they are unhappy. King Jesus says to divorce except for marital unfaithfulness is sin. In fact, it causes the divorced person to sin. He says causes her to become an adulteress. I think that's because it assumes that in that culture she'll have to remarry. What's she going to do in that culture? She's got to go get remarried. And anyone who marries a woman divorced on those grounds also commits adultery. But he's saying, it's your fault if you dump her. The 2011 NIV translates it, makes her the victim of adultery. That's really well said. 
See, just because you have a legal piece of paper doesn't mean that your divorce is righteous in God's eyes. Not all divorces are sinful, but many of them are, no matter what the law says. Now, Jesus does give an exception here in verse 32, except for marital unfaithfulness. The Greek word for that is pornea, which is a general term for a number of sexual sins, adultery included. Also, prostitution, fornication, and other sexual transgressions that break the marital bond. So if your spouse commits sexual infidelity, it is not sinful to divorce them. Remember Joseph and Mary? Remember what Joseph thought that Mary had done? Remember that from chapter 1 or chapter 2 of Matthew? Remember that Joseph was a righteous man and was going to, what? Divorce her quietly. If he was right about what she had done, he would have been within righteousness to divorce her. But he didn't have to. Not just because she was actually a virgin, surprise, surprise, but because of forgiveness. You see, both Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai were wrong to require divorce even in the case of Pornia. If the unfaithfulness is repented of, it can be forgiven and the marriage can be saved. I've seen it happen several times. And when it does, it's glorious. Now you'll notice that this is the shortest of the six, but I tell you's. I think that's because Matthew's going to tell us more about Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce when we get to chapter 19. So there's more to come later. And you'll notice that he breaks the pattern here too. We have the first part from the Torah and the second part, Jesus' explanation, but there's no practical application. I think that's because it's just plain obvious. Stay faithful to your spouse. If you are married then stay faithful to your husband or your wife. Avoid divorce like the plague. And don't do anything that would endanger your marriage. Don't allow yourself to fall into that pornea, that marital unfaithfulness that would give your spouse biblical grounds for divorcing you. That's point number one. Do everything in your power. Do whatever it takes to escape from sexual sin. That's what King Jesus wants from his followers. And anything else, he says, is sin. Now, I know that's a hard teaching. Some of you have experienced divorce. Some of you have had it happen to you. And some of you chose it. Some of you chose it on biblical grounds, and some of you probably chose it for the wrong reasons. And there is grace. More than enough grace in the blood of Jesus that we've been singing about all morning, to forgive repentant sinners and to give us all the power we need to follow Him anew. But we still need to choose to follow Him. What do you need to do to stay faithful to your spouse? Remember, Jesus isn't just looking at the piece of paper. Jesus is looking at the heart. Yeah, I might be married, but I'm not really married. I don't live like it. What do you need to do to stay faithful to your spouse while Jesus looks at your heart? I know that this teaching raises lots of questions. There are so many what ifs and what abouts when it comes to these things. 
I read most of a 300-page book yesterday called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage by Jim Neuheiser just to bone up on the biblical details. So if you have questions about this, that's why I'm here. But hear this. This is what Jesus is saying to those of us who are married today. Stay faithful to your spouse. Keep your promises. Keep all of your promises. Let's look at this last one because I think it's connected at the promise level. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now that seems pretty straightforward, right? It's kind of a loose translation of Leviticus 19.12, kind of a riff off of the third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain. Sounds good. It's from the law. What could go wrong? Well, here's what they were apparently doing with that. They were emphasizing the last three words. Keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. So there's a loophole. If your oath wasn't to the Lord, then guess what? You don't have to keep them. And they had an elaborate list of oaths, and what you could take your vow by that would, would make the vow binding, or if you took your vow by this, would make it not binding. Jesus will talk about this again in chapter 23, when he takes down the Pharisees for splitting those hairs. They were actually using these kinds of words as escape hatches. It's like, um, well, I, I cross my heart and hope to die, but... I didn't say, I swear to God. So it doesn't count. It was all loopholes. So Jesus says, part 2, verse 34, But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Don't swear by something less than God to diminish your accountability. Don't throw in some approved substitutes for God's name to establish some loopholes for yourselves. See what kind of lawyers they were? In fact, don't swear at all. Not if that's how you're going to do it. Now, I don't think that Jesus is absolutely prohibiting all taking of oaths. Jesus himself takes an oath in chapter 26 at his trial. This is not about courtrooms or marital vows or oaths of office. This is about being truthful. It's about being honest. It's about being men and women of integrity. This is about our, our being so trustworthy that oaths are not necessary. Right? You don't need them. There's no extra guarantees because we just do what we say we're going to do. Verse 37, part 3. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Say what you mean and mean what you say and keep all of your promises. Don't use those fancy oaths for things that you can't control and don't own. You don't own heaven. Don't go swearing by it. That's God's throne. If you break that promise, you can't bring heaven down to the person you promised it to. You don't own earth. It's God's footstool. You don't mess with that. You don't own Jerusalem. Don't try to put it up for collateral. It's the city of the great king. 
You don't even own your own head. You, you don't control your DNA. You can't make your hair grow out white or black. You can't turn yourself young or turn yourself old on a, on a whim. Just say what you mean and mean what you say. Anything else comes from Satan. Satan likes to pretend that he owns everything. Don't be like him. Be like God. Because he always keeps his promises. To your spouse, to your kids, at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your church. Is that easy to do? Not always. Sometimes keeping your promises hurts big time. And yes, there are some promises that you should repent of and not keep. Like if you promise to murder someone, or you promise to commit adultery, you should not keep those promises. But any promise that was good should be as good as gold. Because we are following King Jesus, who has kept and is keeping and will keep his promises forever. That's what he's told us. Let's pray.